Tonight's reading is from Amos, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 3, verse 12. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. The word of the Lord. people with any sort of oratory finesse kind of know that you might not really get far with an audience by opening with something like, hear this word, you cows. And then bringing it to a close by saying you're going to be dragged away with meat hooks. Sharp fish hooks with barbs are going to be plunged through your lips. Bad, disgusting, fat, wine-drinking cows. Amos, I guess, wasn't exactly big on even-handed speech or moderate dialogue. People, in, people often recommend that if you want to be heard, you shouldn't speak in accusations, but Amos is all about the accusation, the sweeping condemnations. The way he tells it or screams it or growls it, all the so-called people of God are bad. Not just Indifferent to the poor and the weak and the needy and the broken, they are crushing their heads into the dirt. They're grinding their faces in the gravel. They have neglected everything that's important. We've been dealing with texts all year that build and simultaneously, sometimes subtly, dismantle. By the time we get to Amos, it is just full-on, full-out prophetic attack against the institutions of the people of God. Amos looks the people in the eye and he says, I know what a terrible sinner you are. You think you're just sitting on your back deck having a nice glass of wine, cow. For every one of your little nice glasses of wine, there's a whole history of migrant workers with pesticides running through their veins. For your decks, they're clear-cutting the last remaining boreal forest. For your chair, your clothes, sweatshop fires in Bangladesh, you sit there blithely tapping at your smartphone, unconcerned that poor farmers died mining for its tin. And the people think, we're just relaxing a little here in our chair on our deck. Lay off all the negativity, weird man. But Amos is like, yeah, you don't have a clue what's in for you. You who are at ease, you who are now secure, a very bitter day from which not one of you will escape. It's dark. 
He says, as the shepherd rescues from the bloody gaping mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, there may be hope for you. That's his vision of the hope for them. A bloody little mangled bit of tissue rescued from the mouth of a lion, a piece of an ear. Great. Amos says he's not a prophet or a son of a prophet. He's just a guy that picks fruit and herds sheep. He's just a guy who spends a lot of time outside with animals and fruit. But he says that God's speaking to him, and apparently God is urging him to say, you cows who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who enjoy the mountains of Samaria, and say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. They're probably just enjoying their weekend. But to him it looks like sin, catastrophe, neglect. You're enjoying a glass of wine when there are people who have barely enough clean water to keep their babies hydrated. You're laying down on the couch, he talks about couches a lot, with some popcorn and the New Yorker in your lap with a nice soft pillow when the people who can't even lay down because their skin has been burned off their backs by drones, your drones, the drones of the nation in which you are a citizen. Amos's name means burden. Seems like a pretty good name for him. Or maybe wet blanket. Something's gotten into him and he can't relax and he can't be comfortable and he really can't tolerate anybody else being comfortable or relaxing. Or he doesn't think the well-being of creation can tolerate it. And this is interesting about Amos. He's not talking to the other people out there who are bad, but who are not us. It's his people. The heart of his heart's his own, his us. It's the people who bound themselves together amidst huge forces and nations, sticking together, doing good, loving each other, believing in God. It's his us that he's worried about. To be part of the people of God had always been a sort of comforting thing, something hopeful, something different. People looking out for each other and for the underdogs, the people of God looked forward to the day of the Lord when justice would roll down. They always thought of themselves as the ones who wanted this to happen, longed for it to happen. They thought they'd be a part of this beauty when justice rolled down. They'd celebrate because they were pretty good people. They believed in love and mercy and justice. They may have been enjoying just recently some time relaxing in the mountains of Samaria, They'd been besieged by huge empires. They'd wandered in the desert, so now there's a little bit of a break in the pressure. And so they're relaxing, just a little bit of relaxing on their verandas. For just one moment, they're sitting back. I mean, they haven't gone on vacation for two years. And they just settled on the couch. And they just put up their feet. And they don't want to get up and go to the kitchen, so they say to their husband, Jim, bring that we may drink. And this really seems to bug Amos. He equates it with crushing the heads of the poor into the gravel. It's a little bit hard to take. The people of God were waiting for the day of the Lord when justice would roll down. Amos turns it all around in a way that he seems to hope will make it impossible for anyone to be comfortable. He's like, to be the people of God, that's not about being comforted. It's about being the people who can't ignore the least and the hungry and the boreal forests and the melting glaciers and the poor farmers in Indonesia mining tin for apple. 
Amos is furious and maybe afraid because he sees that the people of God, the people who had supposedly chosen to participate in a covenant with God and each other and all of creation, have neglected to care. They just live like everybody else and believe in all the things that everyone else believes in. They aren't pointing to this hope of a radically alternative orientation to reality. I think maybe we are so inside, so subsumed, our lives orchestrated by the injustice spewing, creation-killing empire, that if justice rolled down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, we would drown. Or at any rate, justice is certainly not going to mean an increase in our standard of living. Behold, says Amos, the Lord has sworn the days are coming when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. He's very scary sounding. The prophets like Amos and Hosea and Jeremiah were trying to wake people up trying to break through the consciousness and perception and imaginations that had somehow been almost entirely subsumed by the empire, dulled, muffled, blinded, trying to evoke the actual possibility of an alternative. Amos says in his even-handed way, create an alternative or die. And maybe he's wrong about the empire. Maybe capitalism will save us and the environment and every beleaguered people everywhere. Maybe we can believe in the creative forces of an ever-evolving market to eventually halt climate change and stop wars and raise the standard of living for everybody. But Amos looks at Israel, the people of God, and the way they're living and the way they neglected the covenant with each other and creation and God, and he's like, this lifestyle is unsustainable. And he is a little like a crazy, one-sided extremist prophet of doom, but in the story in the Bible, he turns out to be right. Israel thought that things were looking up for her, but that was an illusion. When God's justice rolled down, I mean, that's the way they talked about it. The nation is destroyed, and the people are sent into exile. The worst thing they could have imagined happened. Maybe the prospect of stepping outside the market system on which we depend for our lives, our money, our jobs, our sense of normalcy is so disturbing or frightening or paralyzing that we just sort of have to believe somewhere that the logic of the system will correct itself. Trading carbon emissions, buying green, believing in the strength of the free market to create products and technologies that will solve the global crisis. But maybe that's insane. Amos is adamant that believing in the system is doom. You've got to step outside or creation is doomed. The people of God can't be the people of the idol of the empire. It just has to be something radically different, a radical alternative to the dominant reality. And don't we need new words? different than alternative, radical, dominant. You could make them up. Alternative and radical have been used up, bottled and sold, and we need something that won't sell, something that you can't sell, 
Amos isn't selling anything. He's more choking and screaming. It hurts him. He's vitriolic and shrill and obnoxious. It's because he feels this urgency. He thinks the hearts and souls of the people are being sucked out of them. And they aren't even aware. But he says this people may be able to survive, actually. But they need a breakthrough. Some sort of intellectual dismantling, dislocation, like being chewed up in the mouth of a lion and then pulled out. Something to yank them out of their muffled heads. Maybe our consciousness and imaginations have been so assaulted and co-opted that we've been robbed of the courage or the power to think a truly alternative thought. Maybe the only future is the one the empire wants to urge as the only one that's thinkable, where there are ever more alternative ways to consume, curated by friends or like minds, where creativity is a kind of purchase, people, disembodied friends. The ministry of the prophet is to keep alive or conjure up something other than what is prescribed by the dominant regime. You don't even have to be able to implement it. You just have to be able to imagine it. Walter Brueggemann says we live in an empire that can implement anything but imagine nothing. Imagine imagining. Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse-Five watching the television show about a movie where American warplanes flying over Germany. And Pilgrim stares at the screen and changes the movie in his mind. Invents a new kind of bomb, this new kind of bomb sucks the fire out of babies and pulls the metal out of screaming families and heals everything all over town. And then all that fire and metal zooms back inside the bomb that makes its way back to the States where it is unmade and loaded into trucks that drive carefully backward. And all the parts are taken back to where they came from, the metal taken to the mine, the mine's closed. Nice and crazy. Faith isn't necessarily always very comforting. It requires something, a freedom to do something or imagine something that is not prescribed by the empire, something outside of it, something uncommodifiable, something like God and mercy and love. And I mean, maybe you can't really quit your job and live off the grid and skin deer to make boots for your children. But you grow food, say. You eat something every day that you didn't purchase so that you can actually, like, grow cells, be nourished by something you didn't buy. I read about some linguist who logged the number of sentences the average North American hears in a day. I don't know how he did this. 85% of the sentences were professionally designed with the explicit purpose of selling us something or motivating us in some way. The rest came from friends and acquaintances, and about half of those were also aimed at some sort of manipulation or somehow self-interested. Maybe we could just imagine a different way of talking. 
Maybe we could just go a day without thinking of anything at all in terms of us and them. An article I read suggested finding a little strip of grass between, say, McDonald's and the freeway. Sit there and focus on whatever life you find there, like whatever's crawling in the grass, and respect it, revere it, like deeply respect. Deeply respect what is other than you. Maybe that's a revolt against empire. I don't know, but there's got to be ways. Amos says the people of God have failed to seek God. And he thinks their souls are being sucked out of them. And you'd think he'd say, well, whatever sick sort of world your lack of love and faith and disregard for other people and creation has created, your empire-coded reality where you live now, God's not there. But instead, in the midst of all his ranting and bleak predictions and condemnation, Amon keeps saying, prepare to meet God. It's sort of surprising, like, where? Meet God, he says, meet God. Like God's sort of been standing there on the sidewalk, maybe heartbroken and angry, but standing there right beside you, waiting to shake your hand the whole time. Debbie, David, Charles, Frederick, meet God. The covenant is broken eight million times over and over and over again in the stories of the Bible. And it's awful. Creation is diminished. It's hurt. And the machine is just whirring on and on. Pieces of the covenant ground up in it. And no one's even looking over their shoulder half the time. And every time God comes around the side and picks out some of the mangled pieces, and is like, well, okay, let's try this again. Let's see what we can do.